Section 28 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16 The Execution of Sir Walter Raleigh. Part 2. James had put himself into a false position with regard to Spain by allowing the expedition to start at all. His one wish now was to give full satisfaction to Spain by the execution of the traitor. He knew it would be an unpopular act, and he was afraid of allowing Raleigh to be examined publicly. By refusing to do so, he took the unwisest course he could possibly have done. He allowed Raleigh to be executed by virtue of the old sentence which was still unrepealed, and did not first make clear to the public the reasons why the sentence was now allowed to take effect after the lapse of fourteen years. In this way, Raleigh appeared to everyone as a martyr, and as a martyr to Spain, which was just then the object of popular hatred. Even those who at the present day are inclined to judge severely Raleigh's conduct with regard to the Guiana expedition can hardly defend either the fact or the manner of his execution. With regard to his dealings with France, we see that the commissioners considered that his part in them was passive rather than active. He confessed them all to the king in a letter written from the tower on the 5th October. What his dealings with Fague were before he went to Guiana, we have already seen. After his return, he had been visited three times by a French gentleman, Chesnay, and once by the French agent to London, Leclerc, with offers of assistance. Much irritation had already been excited at the French court by the way in which Chesnay and Leclerc had been examined before the commissioners. James thought, therefore, that this matter had better be only very lightly touched upon, doubtless through fear lest anything should arise in consequence to disturb his friendly relations with France. On the 28th October, Raleigh was summoned from the Tower to appear before the councillors at Westminster. As he passed out, an old servant of his reminded him that he had forgotten to comb his head. "'Let them kem it that are to have it,' answered Raleigh, smiling, and added, Dost thou know, Peter, of any plaister that will set a man's head on again when it is off? In answer to the charges of the commissioners, Raleigh spoke out as fearlessly as ever. He pleaded that he could not be proceeded against on the old sentence which had been annulled by the royal commission which he had received for his voyage, a voyage which, notwithstanding my endeavors, he said, had no other issue than what was fatal to me, the loss of my son and the wasting of my whole estate. He indignantly affirmed his intention to find the mine, and denied that he had intended to abandon his fleet or bring about war between Spain and England. At the end, the commissioners declared that in their opinion the sentence might justly be proceeded with, and Sir Walter was ordered to prepare for death the next morning. He was conveyed from Westminster Hall to a small building in the palace yard the gatehouse of the old monastery, which had long been used as a prison. As he passed across the yard, he met an old friend to whom he said, You will come tomorrow morning? And when his friend answered, Certainly, Raleigh added, I do not know what you may do for a place. For my own part, I am sure of one. You must make what shift you can. Many came to see him in the gatehouse. One of his kinsmen, surprised at his good spirits, said, do not carry it with too much bravery. Your enemies will take exception if you do. 
It is my last mirth in this world, answered Raleigh. Do not grudge it to me. When I come to the sad parting, you shall see me grave enough. Raleigh had always professed scorn of death. Now he seemed to welcome it cheerfully as a friend. Dr. Robert Townsend, Dean of Westminster, was ordered by the Lords of the Council to be with him during his last night in prison and at his death. Townsend says in a letter which he wrote to a friend about Raleigh's bearing at his death, he was the most fearless of death that ever was known, and the most resolute and confident, yet with reverence and conscience. When I began to encourage him against the fear of death, he seemed to make so light of it that I wondered at him. He gave God thanks he never feared death, and much less then, for it was but an opinion and imagination. In the manner of death, though to others it might seem grievous, yet he had rather die so than of a burning fever, with much more to that purpose, with such confidence and cheerfulness, that I was fain to divert my speech another way, and wished him not to flatter himself, for this extraordinary boldness, I was afraid, sprang from some false ground. If it sprang from the assurance he had of the love and favor of God, of the hope of his salvation by Christ, and his own innocency, as he pleaded, I said he was a happy man. But if it were out of an humor of vain glory or carelessness or contempt of death or senselessness of his own estate, he were much to be lamented. For I told him that heathen men had said as little by their lives as he could do, and seemed to die as bravely. He answered that he was persuaded that no man that knew God and feared him could die with cheerfulness and courage, except he was assured of the love and favor of God unto him that other men might make shows outwardly, but they felt no joy within, with much more to that effect very Christianly, so that he satisfied me then, and as I think he did all his spectators at his death. That night Lady Raleigh came to the gatehouse to bid farewell to her husband. Till midnight they talked together. Of his son Carew he could not bear to talk to her, but he told her how she must try to vindicate his fame before the world if he should be prevented from making an address on the scaffold as he intended. Lady Raleigh told him that the council had given her the disposal of his dead body. It is well, dear Bess, he answered, that thou mayest dispose of that dead which thou hadst not always the disposing of when alive. That night, too, Raleigh employed himself in writing a testamentary note in which he once more vindicated himself from the charges which had been brought against him. Then, too, he, in all probability, wrote some lines which were afterwards found in his Bible. When such is time that takes on trust, our youth, our joys, our all we have, and pays us but with earth and dust, who, in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise me up, I trust. Early in the morning he received the communion. He was very cheerful and merry, says Dr. Townsend, and hoped to persuade the world that he died an innocent man, as he said. He ate his breakfast heartily and took tobacco and made no more of his death than if it had been to take a journey. The execution was to take place early. It was the Lord Mayor's Day, and it had been hoped that the counter-attraction of the show in the city would draw away many from hearing Sir Walter's last words. But the crowd in the yard was dense, 
and Raleigh, escorted by two sheriffs and Dr. Townsend, was so much thronged and crowded on his way to the scaffold that he was made quite breathless. One old bald-headed man pressed up toward him, and Raleigh asked him if he would out of him. The man answered that he only wished to see him and prayed God to have mercy upon his soul. Sir Walter thanked him and, taking off a nightcap of cut lace from his head, threw it to him with the words, Take this, you need it, my friend, more than I do. On reaching the scaffold, Raleigh said that he had been suffering from ague on the two last days. If, therefore, he added, you perceive any weakness in me, ascribe it to my sickness rather than to myself. I am infinitely bound to God that he hath vouchsafed me to die in the sight of so notable an assembly, and not in darkness, neither in that tower, where I have suffered so much adversity and a long sickness. A number of lords amongst whom was Arundel and Oxford were watching the scene from a window in a dwelling-place which overlooked the yard. Turning to them, Raleigh said he wished his voice were strong enough for them to hear him. They answered that they would come down, and came and stood upon the scaffold. After they had shaken him by the hand, he began to speak again. He solemnly denied that he had had any plot or intelligence with the French king, or that he had spoken dishonorably and disloyally of King James. He called God to witness to the truth of these assertions. It is not now a time, he said, either to fear or to flatter kings. I am now the subject of death, and the great God of heaven is my sovereign before whose tribunal I am shortly to appear. And therefore have a charitable conceit of me. To call God to witness an untruth is a sin above measure sinful, but to do it at the hour of one's death were the greatest madness and sin that could be possible. He said that in taking the sacrament that morning he had forgiven both Stukely and the Frenchman, Manouri. He confessed that he had tried to escape. He once more asserted his belief in the existence of the mine and said that he had always meant to come home however his voyage turned out. Turning to Arundel, he said, I am glad my lord Arundel is here, and he told how he promised Arundel before he sailed that he would come back again, and had given him his hand upon it, and this Arundel confirmed. At the end, Raleigh spoke a few words to justify himself of a charge made long ago against him, which he said made his heart bleed, namely that he had been a persecutor of Essex, and had watched his execution from a window with disdain puffing out tobacco. God, I take to witness, he said, my eyes shed tears for him when he died. I confess I was of a contrary faction, but I knew that my lord of Essex was a noble gentleman, and that it would be worse for me when he was gone. Finally Raleigh desired all very earnestly to pray for him, for that he was a great sinner for a long time, and in many kinds his whole course was a course of vanity. A seafaring man, a soldier and a courtier, the least of these were able to overthrow a good mind and a good man. Then the executioner knelt and asked forgiveness, which he granted, laying his hands upon the man's shoulders. He asked to see the axe, and as he felt its sharp edge, he said, This gives me no fear. It is a sharp and fair pencil to cure me of all my distempers. Turning again to the executioner, he added, When I stretch forth my hands, dispatch me. 
Then, with courtly grace, he bade farewell to his friends who stood around and turned with parting salutations to the crowd on either side of the scaffold, begging them heartily that they would give him their prayers. The executioner cast down his own cloak, and Raleigh laid himself upon it, stretching out his hands as a sign that he was ready. But the man hesitated. "'What dost thou fear? Strike, man, strike!' said Raleigh without stirring. His lips moved as if in prayer, and at last the axe fell. There were two blows, and the head rolled off. When the head was lifted up and shown to the people, one man was heard to say, We have not such another head to be cut off. The head was put into a red bag, and the body was wrapped in its velvet gown. They were carried to Lady Raleigh. She had asked her cousin, Sir Nicholas Carew, for permission to bury in his church at Beddington the dead body of her noble husband, which the lords had given her, though they had denied her his life. But for some reason or other she changed her mind and had it buried near the altar of St. Margaret's Church, Westminster. She caused the head to be embalmed and kept it with her till she died. The way in which Raleigh met death, with the grace of a courtier, the dignity of a philosopher, the courage of a soldier, and the faith of a Christian, had made him more than ever a hero and a martyr in the eyes of the people. Sir John Eliot, who afterwards himself suffered nobly in the people's cause, was present as a young man at his execution and says, His bearing left only this doubt, whether death was more acceptable to him or he more welcome to death. From the report that is left us of his last words, scanty and insufficient as it necessarily is, we cannot judge the effect they produced. We can better judge of their eloquence from the way in which we are told they stirred the hearts of those who heard them. Afterwards, the town could talk of nothing else. Every day, ballads and pamphlets relating to Raleigh were published. Men looked upon him as having been unjustly executed under his old sentence and fully accepted his own vindication of the charges since brought against him. The publication of the official declaration which was to set forth the reasons why he had been executed was for some reason or other delayed. Indeed, men were so rooted in their opinions that it was hardly likely to produce any change, still less so, coming as late as it did. Sir Judas Stukely, as he was called, became the object of such bitter hatred that he did not know where to hide himself to escape from it. He is said to have died a raving maniac, despised and hated by all men. He had tried to excuse himself by writing an apology, but men had not accepted it. The official declaration of the causes which had led to Sir Walter Raleigh's death was drawn up by Bacon at the King's command. It contained a recital of those charges which in the minds of the commissioners had been proven against him. It took for granted that Raleigh had never really known of the existence of the mine that he had pretended to go in search of, and starting from this it naturally found him guilty of having in every way violated his commission. There can be no doubt that Raleigh did go beyond his commission, but it is equally clear that he never believed that he was bound strictly to adhere to it. Neither in his apology nor in his address from the scaffold does he speak as if it had ever occurred to him that his real fault was the burning and sacking of St. Thomé. There does not seem any reason to believe that the commissioners themselves looked upon this as his chief crime. Neither he nor anyone else ever denied that Santome had been burnt. If that act in itself 
had been looked upon at that time as so severe a breach of the law of nations as it would be considered now, there would have been no real need of all the examinations of Raleigh himself and his fellow adventurers with a view of proving other things against him. Of that he stood clearly accused by his own mouth, but that was not enough to condemn him in those days. To the great mass of people it was no crime at all, and in James's eyes it was only a crime because he feared lest it might bring about a breach with Spain. Even the official declaration did not lay so much stress upon the burning of San Tomé as it did upon the other charges which posterity has clearly judged to be of no weight. The declaration, though drawn up by the master hand of Bacon, and possessing all the advantages of his clear and lucid style, produced no effect upon the excited minds of men. The common view was that Raleigh was executed under his old sentence simply to please Spain. Even Dean Townsend expressed his surprise that Raleigh, before his death, never made mention of that for which he really died, his former treason. Perhaps it is easier to forgive James I Raleigh's execution than it is to forgive him the thirteen years' imprisonment in the Tower. When Sir Walter was executed at the age of sixty-three, he was broken in health and worn out with the labors and troubles of his eventful career. Life could have little more in store for him, and death on the scaffold gave him an opportunity of showing the world, in a way which it is not forgotten, how nobly a man can die. But when James came to the throne, Raleigh was still in the prime of life, and no man then living was better fitted to do good work for his country. That James should have failed to make use of the noblest spirit amongst his people shows in a striking manner his incapacity for sympathizing with true genius. Young among the heroes who gathered around Elizabeth's throne, Raleigh lived on into an age when genius was feared, not sought for. It is impossible to say what he might not still have done for his country had he been allowed. It is difficult to say in a few words what he actually did do. His many-sidedness is the most striking thing about him, and by virtue of it, he seems to sum up in himself all the leading characteristics of the Elizabethan age. A fearless soldier, a distinguished seaman, he was at the same time a most gallant and accomplished courtier. He could turn a compliment as gracefully as Sir Christopher Hatton and attack a Spanish galleon as dauntlessly as Drake. Amongst the many great names in the literature of that age, his has found a worthy place as poet, philosopher, and historian. All his life, a complete master of the intricacies of foreign politics, he took also, as long as he was able, an active and intelligent share in home politics. He delighted in far-reaching schemes, and saw how England was fitted by her position and by the character of her people to send forth offshoots into distant lands. To him we may look back as the father of English colonization. But whilst busied in great schemes, he did not forget the duties which lay near at hand. He administered the offices which he held under Elizabeth with zeal and care. He watched with deep interest the planting of his own estate. He never forgot to care for the faithful servants who had followed him through many dangers. By the introduction of the potato and tobacco, he contributed largely to the comfort of his countrymen. His chemical studies show how anxious he was to alleviate human suffering as much as he could. 
a self-summed man of arrogant and overbearing manners, unable to contain the scorn which he felt for mean and common things, he was never loved by the people till his sufferings had taught them the real meaning of his character. The tide of popular feeling was turned at his trial at Winchester, and since then the English people have loved and honored him amongst their heroes. End of section 28. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D. in Encino, California, July 2019. End of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton.